Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley, joined by Buck Sanders and Jason Staples. You're listening to the Inside Carolina podcast, sponsored by JohnnyTShirt.com. Buck Sanders, the day after podcast, as this has grown to be known. I tell you what, it's taken me a while, and we're recording this about five o'clock on Sunday afternoon. It's taken me a while to comprehend what North Carolina was able to do Saturday night in Keenan. Just the entire setup, the the entire day was unbelievable. What a great advertisement for Carolina football, and Carolina gets the win late against the Miami Hurricanes. Yeah, once again, there's no question in there. But, you know, you killing me, Smalls. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay, because I think maybe I do uh, better with uh, things that aren't questions. But um, if you have gotten a handle on what happened last night, then you're light years ahead of me, because very seldom and and Tommy and I go back a very long way with uh, UNC football very seldom um have we experienced and I wrote about this in my column today Miami played well they have a lot of talent from my eye I think they're pretty well coached and despite all of that and despite the fact that they're a five-point favorite, and some people like Phil Steele picked them to win the Coastal Division, despite all of that, and despite the fact I don't think Carolina played as well as is capable of playing, they still won. And for me to wrap my mind around that is, I, I don't know. I mean, it, that's grassy knoll kind of stuff. Um, it's just... To almost uh, to say unbelievable or inconceivable uh, may do it justice, but uh, at this point, uh, I don't know how to do justice uh, to what happened last night. They they made the plays when they counted. They uh, they did things that I think really surprised Miami. Um, I think Max Brown has uh how do i put this delicately um he has a lot of moxie there are other ways of saying that which i won't say on air but uh to call that play on fourth and 17 he was going to be a hero or a goat and he knew that going in and he still called it they still executed it and that was actually i think the difference in the game so um I think it's probably going to take a while for all of us uh, to put the game in perspective. The bottom line is they're two and zero over two Power Five teams. Um, you know, a lot of people did not even predict them to win. And and I'm going to Jason may know, may know Barton Simmons. Um, he's a 24/7 Sports football analyst. Some of his work appears on. Uh, cbssports.com, his predictions and whatnot. And one of his bold predictions uh, headed into the season is that North Carolina would go 1-10 or 1-11 and 
uh, the same record that Mac Brown had uh, in his first year in his first go around at UNC. So that oh, hot Barton. take that 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 hot take didn't age well. But uh, and but if it were me, uh, and you know, when I predicted going into the season that North Carolina would get to six and six, I felt like I was going out on the limb. Honestly, I I felt like well, if they go six and six and get to a ball game, that's a great season. Move on to next year and you know take that and run with it. But now all sorts of possibilities are open. So if you've wrapped your mind around this, Tommy, you're way of the head of game over me. Well, watching it in Keenan, environment just insane. It's going nuts in there. A, a buddy of mine, shout out to my buddy Kendall that sits across the aisle from me. He kept saying, they're going to lose. They're going to lose this game. They're going to they're figure out how to lose this game. And then. After the touchdown, he's like, oh, no, they're going to kick a field goal and they're going to win or tie it or whatever. Oh, now they blah, blah, blah. I said, man, it's different. It feels different. It's different. And, Jason, just the environment. I mean, Mac Brown said it's the best he's seen ever. He says better than 97 Judgment Night. I don't know about that, at least till the game started, because that still is the, the uh, bar setter. But throughout the game and then that last touchdown – pass and play and the two-point conversion I mean it it was almost a cathartic moment for Carolina fans similar to when Gio ran the punt back against State that's what Keenan Stadium felt like in that moment your take and your thoughts and then I'll hold on let me ask you a question can I get your thoughts and your feelings on the environment you saw um, in Keenan Stadium I think that's the question but Jason it looked to me like a sleeping giant waking up. I mean, that's that's really what what you saw, and it's just amazing to me that you know Mac left after the Judgment Day. All that stuff took place. He had taken the program to the threshold, and then was never really able to get him to the point where that pregame atmosphere was ever able to be sustained during a game, and. You know, I wasn't there for the for the Judgment Day game. I've been there for a lot of games since, and this was by far the best environment I've seen at Carolina, and that that includes a whole lot of basketball games too. Um, you know, I I would say there there have been a couple of uh, of Duke UNC games basketball wise that were in, in in this kind of in that kind of level, but that's the kind of environment that, that was <laughs> that we saw. Which is a credit to again the 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 change in culture that has already begun taking place with Mac and his staff coming to coming to Chapel Hill. Uh, now, as for what Buck was saying, you know I, that was one thing I was really I actually was really confident after watching the open practice that this was a bowl team. I was pretty confident that you know kind of the, as long as they didn't have a rash of injuries akin to what they'd had last year. But this was a ball team that they they'd go six and six. That's probably your floor, but you never know. And sorry, that's uh that's the kiddo uh, on my lap. But um, but you know that's that's kind of what I thought the the floor was. So you know, Barton Simmons. Well, you know, there there are certain skill sets that people have, and and in some cases, evaluating um, evaluating football rosters and uh, level of uh, of quality of play uh, isn't 
isn't everybody's forte in that regard. He does a great job as uh, as a uh, as as head of recruiting for for twenty four seven. But yeah, like you said, that one didn't age very well. I'm not really surprised. I mean, we talked in the in pre in the preseason about you know if Sam Howell plays really well, the the first two games are really coin flips that Carolina could win either one. It's just not especially likely that they win either one, but there's no reason they couldn't win either one or both. And they went out there, and the biggest difference is that in each case, those games had moments where they were eminently losable, and they're games that North Carolina teams in recent memory would have found a way to lose. And that's why your buddy across the aisle is going, they're going to lose. They're going to find a way. You know, they're going to kick a field goal. They're going to tie it, and then we're going to lose. And you could hear, and I tweeted about it uh, at, at, on that last drive, that that, that – the score, the the two point conversion was the was the best I've ever seen Keenan. I mean, I think that was at least on par with when Geo returned that that kick against uh against NC State or that punt, I guess. Um, but you could also after Miami crossed midfield, you could see they were still loud, but it looked but the crowd was terrified. You could you from from where I was at, you could just see everybody in the audience, everybody in the stands is going, all right, let's go, let's go, come on. And it was a little bit of a different feel. There was that little bit of of nervous terror of uh oh, here we go again, like the shoe's about to drop. And I remember it used to be like that when I would visit Clemson. So I went to Clemson a number of times uh before they were what they are now, and they were it was the best game day environment through kickoff early in games but and and in general the the rule was Clemson and Florida were the loudest places Florida State would play as visitors but the difference is Clemson would be louder in bursts but ultimately their fans weren't accustomed to winning at the same degree and would get you know kind of would get scared and you could hear them all of a sudden start to get terrified and then they'd lose it after they'd go down a little bit. And then, you know, that was that. Whereas Florida, you know, those rednecks would stay loud the whole, the whole game regardless. Cause they just, they, they either were too drunk or too stupid to notice when, you know, their team was losing or whatever. So they just kept, kept more consistent. Well, Clemson over the years has now become an environment where, Oh, we're down by we're down by seven now, or we're we've got to make a drive late in the game to win it. Well, of course we're going to get that. We're going to support our team, and and you don't hear the fear in the crowd. You hear this: we're gonna we're gonna be there and and help support. And that's the next step. But right now, last night was the was the first time I've really seen the expectation on the sideline and among the team for Carolina, you saw after the, after the, the game game winning touchdown, what became the game winning touchdown, the go ahead touchdown, they all responded. I mean, yes, they were excited, but they all responded as though they expected that. And that spoke volumes to me that this was, this is not a team that's been there before, but they, they made the drive, and then you could see the way that they responded. It was like, all right, we expected that. And then they were able to line up and do what they needed to do in the two-point conversion, which, by the way, second week in a row where they've had a really clever call that involves some shifts and motion to get the defense into a particular look and then uses the defensive aggressiveness against itself 
to get on the edge and get an easy two-point conversion. Second week in a row, they've had a really nice call specifically set aside to do that. And that is an organizational thing. That's coaching that, you know, you, you, you put that stuff together and you know that, okay, we're going to do, we get, we get into two point. Here's our two point play. We got these two plays and each one where we think we're going to get in That's saying something about the organization of the coaching staff. But I, I, I really think that, that this game showed a lot about the, about some change in culture that, that Brown and his staff have, have brought. And I, and also answered the one real big question that I had about Mac Brown remaining. And that was, okay, in close games, is he going to play conservative like he used to at times? Is he going to punt, you know, when they cross mid, you know, you got a, you got fourth and two at mid, you know, around midfield, is he going to punt it, which is the lower percentage play, or has he in his time at, at working TV become enough acquainted with the, with the, uh, the more modern analytics on this, that he's changed his approach. And I think we saw that he's willing to take the, uh, what'd you call it, Buck, the, the more uh, gutty approach or whatever it was. Let's, let's uh, try to keep our non-explicit rating here, but he, he played the aggressive route and the correct route in each case. And, you know, fortune favors the bold and, and fortune favors the team that does the right, that plays the odds the right way. And, and uh, they, they made the right decision each time. And that again says a lot about where they're going. Let me talk about Johnny T-shirt right fast so we can uh, highlight them early in this podcast. They're, of course, a sponsor of the Inside Carolina podcast, Johnny T-shirt on Franklin Street. I'm sure they did well yesterday. Keenan Stadium was packed. A lot of people getting down on Franklin Street before the game, taking in the atmosphere on Franklin Street, taking in Johnny T-shirt, getting in there and buying some swag. Don't forget JohnnyT-shirt.com as well. Your online store for Inside Carolina, your online store for Carolina gear, anything you can imagine. Carolina related football, basketball, baseball, across the world, soccer school, anything you need. Johnny T-shirt on Franklin Street, Johnny T-shirt.com. And don't forget that Johnny T-shirt uh, or premium subscribers of Inside Carolina get 10% off Johnny T-shirt orders. Uh, mm. it, it, it is worth it, especially when you need some new swag like so many people do. Um, Mac is back shirts, anything like that. Pick it up at Johnny T-shirt. But we've talked about uh, gravitas a little bit on this podcast and in the past. And I tell you what, you know, it's amazing to me how the coaching staff has instilled belief in this program and belief in their players um, because you have to have it to win. I mean, it's virtually the same team that won five games over the last two years with two huge exceptions, the coaching staff and the quarterback and Buck. I'm not sure I've seen a quarterback for North Carolina step in and make the plays that Sam Howell made last night. He made them against uh, South Carolina. But the throw, I mean, Jason talked about on his film breakdown, the throws he makes are just ridiculous. And on the touchdown throw to ultimately win the game, he goes through his progressions and then throws a dot in the corner of the end zone to win the game. Uh, Your thoughts on Howell and and just – you know, sort of put it in perspective as one of the old hats covering and been around Carolina football. I, I've not seen a guy, especially not this young, be as good and as, as solid when the game's on the line. First, I'd like to, to comment on the family-friendly nature of Inside Carolina podcasts. 
Doc Staples' daughter will uh, have recorded for all time her first appearance on a podcast uh, when she is doing sideline reporting for ESPN or whatever it is. She ends up doing probably something better than that, I would imagine. But uh, that's awesome, I think. My my dogs have uh, been a part of the content, uh, podcast over the years. And so uh, I, I like that about uh, our ability to uh, soldier through, uh, these family moments and incorporate them. But, um, the, the thing that you commented on, uh, and I, I, I'm going to add to this at the, at the end of my comments, uh, is about, um, Sam Howell's obvious throwing skills, you know, he's his ability to, throw those darts you're talking about to throw that fourth and 17 to toe groves and to throw that touchdown pass to Daz Newsom and, and things that just douse you with his arm strength. But one of the things about Sam Howell that is more impressive to me than any of that is that he's a true freshman quarterback and in the, uh, red zone, they're trying to score North Carolina's and have got the ball and Miami jumps offside. And instead of, okay, uh, I've got five yards, you know, I could just throw it in the dirt or whatever. Sam, how recognizes that? I mean, this is almost like a. NFL level of recognition that I've got a free play here. I can go for the gusto here. And even if I throw a pick, it's gonna, it's not going to count. I'm, I'm going to, you know, get the ball back five yards closer to the end zone. And so what does Sam Howell do? He tries to get, get the ball in the end zone. It does go incomplete. And if I'm, I might be mistaken on this, but I believe the receiver dropped the ball on that uh, particular attempt, which could have been a touchdown. That level of football IQ in a true freshman quarterback is almost unparalleled. I mean, you know, there, there are, you're talking using one hand and maybe have a couple of fingers left over of a number of quarterbacks that have that sort of recognition and football IQ to understand, Hey, you know, here's, here's a free play in the end zone. I can go for it and it's either going to be a touchdown or I'm going to be five yards closer to the end zone. So that's what, I mean, his arm skills, of course, are, Incredibly vague. I mean, you, you can't do what an elite quarterback does unless he can make those throws. But the mental part of it for a true freshman to me is just, you know, I, I can't remember. I don't have a comparable for that in UNC football history. The The other part that I want to get to, and, and this will lead in uh, maybe to – uh, Jason for an answer, uh, Tommy, feel free to chime in, but Jason and I have talked about this 
several times over the years. And one of the things that we've talked about is how many opportunities North Carolina has been, has been able to have where they're playing in a truly big stage environment in a big game. Jason has talked about this over and over again, where, you know, you've got a packed house. The opponent is strong. The opponent is playing well. You know, it's a nip and tuck game all the way through. And North Carolina finds a way to pull that off. I mean, that is huge for this win. Now, no question. North Carolina is now 1-0 and in conference play. And they're, we'll talk about this week. You know, they're just as in good a shape to win the Coastal Division as anybody else. Uh, but the fact that they have played in a big game and had a positive result is something that pays dividends not just for that game, but down the stretch when they're in a big game, big environment, the lights are on, everybody's watching them, and they're, they're able to pull it off. I think this game will pay dividends down the stretch that we can't even really see right now. And uh, I'd, I'd like to hear Jason's thoughts on that. And, Tommy, you can follow up with him as well And because I think that's an important topic coming out of the Miami game. Jason, I'll let you go ahead and knock it out. I mean, I agree with Buck 100% there. It's it's a building, another huge building block on the program that Mac Brown's trying to build back. Well, yeah, and this gets back to, I mean, when was the last time that we saw Carolina in that kind of situation? And well, let me just think about it this way. Let me pose this question. When was the last time North Carolina started a season 2-0? Ooh, I can't remember. <laughs> There 20, you go. 2014. Was 2014. Actually, is when was the, the last right time? When was the last time North Carolina started a season with two with with started a season undefeated? So at least two wins against FBS competition. Yeah, I, I can't answer that question. I don't. I don't know that. Uh, it's been a long time. Maybe 97. I would say 97. It's gonna have to be 97. Yep. It's 97 because the last time they opened with a win in an opener against power against a power five opponent was 97. And then they won the follow-up game. So they haven't had a chance to play in a lot of big atmosphere games because they've lost early season games over and over and over again. When they've played in bigger environments, it's they found ways to lose from LSU, which is a game they should have won to South Carolina under Fedora, which is a game they should have won to Georgia under Fedora again, which they probably should have won that game. And, you know, they've had opportunities to set themselves up, but each time it's been, you know, and Buck, you've used this, uh, this met metaphor a lot or this picture a lot. And that's Lucy, Lucy pulling the, the ball away from Charlie Brown. That's been, that's been what it's like for Carolina's football team for a long time. And, what we keep what we've talked about for years is if they can get into those big environments to the point where they start getting used to them and they win a few then all of a sudden the the entire approach the confidence level when you're in that environment changes 
It's, it's being the golfer who's now won a major. And now when you go to make that putt, you say, you know what? I've made this putt before. I'm just, I'm just putting like in practice and, and no longer are you terrified of like, I, I, you know, this is my one chance. So the being in a situation where I've been there, done that, that builds on itself. So the next time you're in a tough spot, you've got something else to call upon. You've got, uh, what I would call emotional memory or, uh, you know, everybody talks about muscle memory and, you know, there's something to that and all sorts of, all sorts of things. You train so hard to get muscle memory on lots of things. So you don't have to think about stuff. And so that you can rep stuff properly with good fundamentals and all that you want muscle memory, but you also need emotional and gut energy, gut, uh, memory that is positive so that when you are in those situations, you can call on that. And that is something that got built a little bit in week one. It just got a big boost in week two. And that sort of thing really makes a difference. And going back to Howell, you know, we, we talked in the, when he committed, when he was uh, being recruited and, and all of that, once he signed, we talked about how the, the comp for him coming out was, well, you know, on the, on the, on the upside, he's, he's kind of a Baker Mayfield type and danged if he hasn't done his dang well best to imitate young Baker Mayfield these first couple of weeks, you know, he's a far, he's a long way away from where B- Baker Mayfield finished out in terms of his, his reliability and his ability to throw it all over the field uh, and to be able to, to uh, diagnose as quickly and all of that. But, you know, he's a true freshman in his second game. And I don't think most people really appreciate how good that last throw was. I mean, from uh, it was not a clean, not a fully clean pocket, stepping up into the right spot and then finding a way to put, I mean, that's a tough throw that, that, that little corner route. That's a harder throw than your standard fade route. That's a harder throw than, a, than, a, than, you know, a slant, all sorts of the, you have to put that there with a lot of, uh, a lot of confidence. That is a, uh, that is a throw that you have to completely trust and you have to, uh, you have to commit to it. That's a commitment throw. And then you have to put enough touch on it to make sure that, that you get it there at the right time. That's it. That's a throw. That's one of those throws that when I do evals, I want to see how well a quarterback throws the corner route and particularly that kind of corner route where you got a little bit of trash around you. That's one of my eval throws. And he just 100% passed that eval because a lot of quarterbacks, even in the NFL, don't throw that, that ball that well. And again, he put that right on the money. There's nothing you can do as a, as a defense when a quarterback's going to place it like that. And to do that in that environment, and and to do and and the throw on fourth and fourteen or fourth and seventeen, even you know in the same class, the same kind of uh, throw because you have to make that throw perfect. Make sure that your only your guy has a chance at it because if anybody gets close to it, you're in trouble. To be able to make those throws back to back to back like he did as a true freshman, um, that, that let's just say that the future appears bright there. Yeah, I, I thought it was incredible to to not just the throws like you're talking about, but you mentioned the environment and, and the setting because it has to be perfect, the last throw, and it was. I mean, I've watched it from a ton of different angles. 
I don't see any way you could throw it any better than he did in that moment in Keenan Stadium on Saturday night and, and had to have it. There was no, uh, okay, we might need this. Had to have it. On fourth and 17, had to have it. On the touchdown, had to have it. Just a great individual effort. But I want to talk about um, a little bit of concerns that I saw in the Miami game. And I, and I can't figure out, and we can discuss this, if it started to occur when Polino went out. We've knocked Polino a little bit, um, but Carolina's offensive line looked really good early. And then for the middle part of the game, maybe the second, third, and part of the fourth quarter, they really struggled in, in run blocking and protection. Miami did a great job. Uh, Buck, does that injury, and folks were asking about injury updates for this podcast. We don't have them. Uh, they'll come out either late Sunday or into Monday uh, with what's going on with Polino and Patricia Renee and a couple other guys. But but that seemed to be an area of concern for me watching Miami and how they started manhandling Carolina's line a little bit there in the middle portion, middle to late portion of the game. The first part of this is the good news. And I, I like to lead with that. Um, I'm an optimist at heart, but so I'm, I'm going to lead with the good news. And the good news is that North Carolina is not going to play very many defensive lines as good as Miami's. They're just not. Clemson, yeah. Outside of Clemson, no. They won't face another front seven quite as talented as Miami's. And so, yes, they got exposed a little bit on the offensive line. uh, And, you know, having to come in into that situation – the, the week before, Brian Anderson got some snaps at center, which was hugely beneficial, no question. I mean, if if they hadn't given him some snaps against South Carolina and then had to have brought him in to the Miami game, uh, as my uh, grandchildren like to say, it would have been much worser. So um, uh, I think it's always injuries. And Jay, this is another subject Jason and I have beat to death over the years. But injuries are the boogeyman of every college football team. You can look great in the preseason. You can have a roster full of, uh, you know, elite-level guys or high-level guys, and you're looking good. You're projected to be whatever in the preseason. You get a rash of of injuries at a particular position on the field or at some critical positions at the field. And while I'm on the subject, I'm just going to say that one of Mac Brown's number one job over the next three years is to keep Sam healthy, which may mean you, you need to pull that kid when you've got a big lead uh, you know, already know what he can do. You get a big lead against somebody. You, that might be a good time to pull him out and let somebody else get some snaps. I'm just going to throw that out there, but, um, you know, it injuries are always a problem and whether or not, uh, Brian Anderson, we'll see how PFF grades him out, but 
you, you really don't know what to say about that until you have a better look at it and, and more evaluation of it. But I agree with you, you know, uh, once Polino went out and some of that is familiarity, Polino and, uh, how they've gotten all the snaps together in practice. And so it's a different set of hands, a different, uh, you know, uh, chemistry there between the two, but overall, even despite the fact that, um, you know, Polino went out and, you know, that's, that's gotta be something that that's a concern moving forward and, and how they deal with that. That last drive of, uh, North Carolina, which enabled, um, you know, the, the score that was led by some really pretty good blocking on the offensive line to, to get Javante Williams loose. And they hadn't run the ball well at all for the entire game. I think maybe they had 26 rushing yards up until the fourth quarter. And then in the fourth quarter, all of a sudden they're shaking people loose. And so, uh, I don't believe that, North Carolina's offensive line, unless they sustain more injuries and more problems, is necessarily a major concern of the offense moving forward. I think they'll be able to deal with next week. Anderson gets all the snaps and things will level out a little bit. It may not be perfect, but it'll be better uh, than what they had. But the, the real strength, and Jason talked about this earlier, you know, in the preseason, and he's been dead on about it the entire time. The center position was never the strong suit of this offensive line. The strong suit was the tackles and to a little bit lesser extent, the guards. Montillas is still a beast. McKeithen made a mistake or two in this game but his potential is just undeniable. So, yeah, okay, uh, I, I think it's appropriate to say, yeah, this is a concern, but I don't know that it's at the level of concern that necessarily has to derail the season for North Carolina on offense. Jason, your thoughts there. You know, we've talked about they have to stay healthy, and I think we can also talk about the – potential impact of a Renee injury on the other side of the ball. But, you know, it just seemed like it changed. You're the, you're the expert, you know, grading film and breaking these games down. Is there anything there to it that it changed because of Polino's absence or did Miami just make a good adjustment and then start using their athletes and their skill uh, to disrupt North Carolina in the middle, middle third or middle half of the ball game? I, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, Polino is he was a starting center for a reason. He was the best option there. And he he's been better than Anderson. And so when he went out, there was a drop off. And there there and not just because he was playing he was the best option there, but also because he's been playing next to those two guards and some of the stuff that you have to get used to in terms of working as a unit, that that's a factor. Um 
so yeah, some of it, I, I would say a lot of it traces back to, and you can look at the the difference. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure if we did a deep dive on the, on the analytics side and looked at efficiency, particularly in the running game before Polino got hurt and after there, there's a significant difference up until the fourth quarter. But I also think that, you know, when you're playing a team like Miami, their defensive line's going to win. Some, they're going to win some, some, some of the time and they're going to win a lot of the time. I mean, they, they've got a quality defensive line. So when that team decides that they're going to take away the run, and we talked about this in the pre in the pregame podcast, and we talked about it on the uh, CHL pregame show that what's Miami going to do? Manny Diaz is going to watch that South Carolina game and he's going to say, okay, we are not going to let this team just run the football for 250 yards on us like South Carolina did. We're going to make them beat us left-handed. So we're going to force the freshmen to make the throws to beat us. And if they do that, well, we'll tip our cap, but you're not going to run it down. You're not going to run it on us. And they decided all game, that's what they were going to do. And yeah, they were able to get a few runs here and there early, but not many. There was not a whole lot of running room even when Polino was in there because Miami came up and they said, you're going to, you're going to have to beat us throwing the ball. Now, what I like about how North Carolina schemed against that is Longo and Mac Brown and that offensive staff knew full well what Manny Diaz was going to do. So what did they do on those first two drives? First three drives play action down the field against one-on-one coverage, a couple double moves, let the big receivers with some speed on the outside run by guys. And all of a sudden you're up 17 to three on some big plays because you believe that your, your freshmen can make those throws down the field. They're low risk anyway. And you think your receivers can run by their DBs. Well, now Miami has to think a little bit about what they're going to do and they decided that they were going to play a little looser outside to take away the the deep stuff, but they were going to force Carolina to still throw the football. And that's when the offense bogged down a little bit. That you know they started winning a little bit up front, and that's going to be expected. I mean, even the best offensive lines in the country are going to lose a decent amount of time against the better defensive lines in the country. I mean, it's just the way it works. But they held their own all game. You know, Howell was not beat up in this game which, you know, go back and watch what happened with Florida and and Felipe Franks and all the shots that he took. North Carolina's offensive line handled Miami's offensive line better than Florida's did, at least in pass protection, particularly in pass protection. So, you know, I think they played well. I think down, I think not having Polino is a concern because they were already, they already had to move Polino to center because they, they didn't have a, a, a good option there. And now they're having to move down the, down the list of options. And if he's not healthy soon, they're going to have to figure out some ways to make sure that they're, they're able to stay productive. But, you know, I think, again, Howell being able to make the throws and the plays that he's made now, that forces, say, Wake Forest defensive coordinator to consider how he, how he can attack the, this offense. He can't just say, and do what Manny Diaz did and say, I'm going to take away the run and force that guy to beat us because now they know he can. So now you have to do some, a little bit more mixing. You have to maybe move your front. You have to do some things that open up some other big play possibilities. 
So either way, I think Carolina is going to be fine down the, you know, down as they move forward down the stretch. But, you know, you hope that Polino is able to get healthy and able to get back on the field so that they can be the, the, the full unit that worked together in camp. And, and again, that's a unit that should be one of the better units in the ACC all year. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the receivers. Uh, Brown, Newsom, Carl Tucker had a good catch in traffic. Uh, Antoine Green, a good catch before he got hurt. Carolina's just skill position players, I thought, were huge early. They forced Miami out of that one-on-one coverage. And, and like you mentioned, Jason, they had to soften up there. Or they were going to get whipped all night on the edges. Uh, I'm going to take a short break, come back. Let's talk a little bit about Carolina's defense. Miami had some success. I want to get Buck and Jackson's take on the overall performance of Jay Bateman's defense against a Miami team and a Miami quarterback who I thought looked really good. Uh, We'll talk about it when we come right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We're back with the Inside Carolina Podcast. I'm Tommy Ashley, joined by Jason Staples and Buck Sanders. Buck, Carolina's defense uh, bent a lot on Saturday night. They were able to get some stops, especially late, force a long field goal. But your overall thoughts on what you saw, uh, Taman Fox was flat-out phenomenal against Miami. Uh, you know, Chas Surratt played well. I thought somebody that stood out to me, and it's not just because he led the team in tackles, but I thought – Jeremiah Gimmel showed some speed to be able to run down some running backs that probably score last year against Carolina. And I'm not sure probably is the right word for it. Uh, but your thoughts on his play, how Carolina's defense looked overall against the Hurricanes? Well, I'm going to start with the overall part first, Tommy. And this to me is uh, one of those stats that's telling you know when you when you look at uh, how teams have done uh, against explosive plays and we also know that Miami they're the kind of team that lives and dies on explosive plays uh, they're the, they're the guys that want to um, beat you and get explosive plays by, and, and that's how they beat you. They get the 30, 40, 50 yard plays and break your back. And, you know, the defense is all dazed and confused. They don't know what to do through two games. 
and bear in mind that North Carolina has uh, played two, we'll call them decent or good teams, whatever you want to characterize them. They're power five teams. They're not FCS teams. They're not bad group of five teams. Uh, But through two games, they have yet to give up a pass play over 40 yards. And, and that's Miami's bread and butter. You know, they, that's what they want. They want to get those big, long, explosive plays uh, to complement a s- solid rushing game. It is, in many ways, sort of a pro-style uh, philosophy, if not schematically. Uh, and how many plays have North Carolina given up through – Two games of 40 yards or more, zero. You look at some other teams, Virginia's given up two. Uh, Virginia Tech's given up two. Miami's given up three, including some against UNC. Georgia Tech's given up five. Syracuse has given up four. Wake Forest has given up four. Those are the kind of plays. And, you know, different coaches have different uh, things they look at in the stat sheet. But one of the things that, uh, some defensive coordinators pay particular attention to is how many explosive plays do we give up? And in that category, uh, only NC state has is, is the only other ACC team. Wait, wait a second. I'll throw Florida state in that conversation too. Florida State, NC State, and UNC are the only teams that have not given up a, a pass play of longer than 40 yards, which if you think about it, that that has a lot, of, lot to do with momentum in a game, uh, how other teams respond. Uh, and so on the macro end of it, I'm going to give the UNC defense uh, big credit for uh, keeping, stopping Miami from doing what they want to do, which is get those big explosive plays in the pass game. Um, as far as individual players, last week, uh, Pro Football Focus graded Jeremiah Gimmel as like a horrible linebacker. I'm guessing when those grades come out this week, he's going to look much, much better. And maybe that's normal progress from game one to game two, um, but maybe not. Chas Surratt was single-handedly responsible for preventing uh, Miami from converting a fourth down play. Incredibly athletic play. Um, he, he just managed to get a hand or arm on the uh, running back and stopped that uh, fourth down conversion, gave UNC the ball back. And Trey Morrison, uh, you know, he may have had a, a lapse here or there, but he is a tremendous cornerback. I mean, he is really, really good. Um, and so you can go to different players on the defense. Jason Crawford, there for a while, and I'd like to have, Jason talk about that. He was just a man among boys on, you know, on that defensive line. 
he was basically doing what he wanted to against Miami's offense. And Jason Strobridge, also the same. Both of them huge effort guys. Uh, they have some talent, which is awesome. But having talent is no substitute for giving 100% effort on every play, which is what they did. Uh, Tamon Fox, you know, made plays, as you alluded to, Tommy. Uh, but there were so many players, DJ Ford, um, several other players on the UNC defense that you can talk about that, you know, they were playing against some highly talented, skilled Miami players, and they held their own. Um, so uh, was it the best defensive outing we're going to see uh, out of Jay Bateman this year? I'd say no. But uh, there's a lot to be encouraged about. I don't like the fact that Patrice Renee went out of the game and didn't come back. Um, but, you know, going forward, uh, I think there's still many, many reasons, despite uh, the total offensive yardage, which means nothing really. In, in fact, North Carolina averaged the same number of yards per play as did uh, Miami. Uh, it, they were equal, 6.4 yards per play. But uh, I think there's a lot to be encouraged about there. I don't think it's a finished product. I still think they need some additional pieces to the puzzle. They need to stay healthy. But I, I don't see any reason to be terribly discouraged about their effort. They held Miami to 25 points. Uh, I, I'm taking that and running with it. Jason, give me some superlatives. And then also – um, on the back side of your comments, some areas of work. I think uh, I, I misjudged the Miami quarterback. I, I did not think he would be as good, even though you said you thought he was good, and, and I think you said even that he was performing better than Howell at the at the time. And when you look at his game yesterday, there's still something to be said for that, even in the losing effort. Yeah, but, thirty for thirty nine for three hundred yards and three hundred nine yards and two scores. Is, that's that's a pretty good day of work. He played well. Yeah, and so um, Carolina's performance against that, against all that skill for Miami. Yeah, the biggest thing is is what Buck hammered out uh, at the at the beginning of his comments there, which was Miami is a big play team, and Bateman and the defense they wanted to make sure that they did two things, and that's limit the limit the run, control the line of scrimmage enough that that they're not able to run the football at will, and that you're able to get some some pressure on the quarterback there, but then make sure that when they make plays that they're 10 or 15 yard plays instead of 45, 50, 60 yard plays. And they had one run of 30 of 37 yards, another of 20, another of, I, I don't, I don't see the other one. There was another one of about 25 and then a long pass reception of 38. That's all they got. Well, okay. That's so that, that I think is the, was the key defensively that, there were a number of times where they looked like they were going to break out and potentially score a touchdown. And those long touchdowns turned into, you know, semi, you know, into medium sized gains. And a couple of them turned into missed field goals or, uh, or, you know, a made field goal. And that's a big, di that's the difference between winning and losing games. Uh, another guy that I, I think deserves to be called out for his, as a superlative is Alan Cater. I thought he played a whale of a game. 
he he was physical at the point of attack. He got into the crease a few times when he had uh, when he had missile responsibility. That's where you know he's knifing in there uh, instead of taking outside responsibility. He's coming in, he's coming inside across the face of his man and coming down the line of scrimmage. Uh, had a big tackle for loss out of that. Uh, I, I thought he he was disruptive all night, along with uh, Tamon Fox, who you you already you also mentioned with three sacks on the day. I mean that 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 deserves some uh, some superlatives as well. And you know Jason Strobridge. I mean we keep talking about him and Crawford. Those two guys won on the inside. Uh, and one of the one of the plays that I'm actually going to highlight this week in, in in film session for Inside Carolina is there's one play where he shed not only the guy that was over him, but then the lead blocker, and then got to the ball carrier for about a half a yard gain. And when you're getting that out of your defensive tackle, well, you know that makes that means you can start stopping the run pretty well. Uh, and then you know another guy that I think deserves a lot of credit is uh, is um, the corner is is Morrison. I thought he, I thought he was excellent all night. And when Renee went out, they still they were not able to pick on both sides of the field. They still basically had to try to go after, uh, after the other side over and over again against Ross. And he played well enough, but a lot of what a lot of the quality from Morrison kept them from kept Miami from being able to uh to go downfield with some of the concepts that they wanted they were able to they were able to force them to do some of the things over the middle or or to push things to the other side because he was rock solid and I, I in particular that the one where they they uh they had I think it was Thomas that that beat him initially and then it was just absolutely perfect I'm talking flawless out of phase technique to get back in phase, close the gap with the, with the wide receiver, get hip to hip with him and then work your hand up through his body and then basically get your hand on the football that, I mean, Dre Bly could not have coached him to do that any better. And it was a touchdown saving. I mean, it's a good throw touchdown saving play. And Again, it's just the little fundamentals of doing every little thing right, and you can see how many times he must they, they must erupt that in practice because so many guys interfere there or they decide, oh, you know, they panic and they they run into the guy and they try to make a tackle as the guy's catching it, and it's a touchdown. What do you tackle him in the end zone for? It doesn't make do any good. Instead, he stuck with his fundamentals. He didn't panic, and there were there were more than one. There was more than one occasion in the secondary where you saw that sort of thing. Uh, and then just finally, just the overall team approach to defense. M- repeatedly, you can see that you, you could see that that they did their job. It was not just, oh, there's a guy and I'm going to go take off and try to make the tackle. It was this is my angle responsibility. I need to take I need to I need to make the tackle as best I can, but I've got to come inside out here. That's my job that makes such a big difference because now what you're always trying to do on defense is try, you're trying to make a a tackle as a team where you've got three points of contact. You've got your guy coming from the inside to squeeze it guy coming from the outside for contain. And then the third guy is coming up, whatever alley it is to, to come head up and make the tackle. If one of those guys is out slightly out of angle, 
then you're going to get really big plays. But over and over and over again, you'd see a Miami guy break, you know, potentially break it or get on the edge. And then the angle would be shut down by the guy doing his job who wouldn't necessarily make the tackle. Uh, There's one first quarter play where they, they threw a, a swing or a bubble out on the edge and the corner did I mean it was picture perfect block destruction? Take on the block with your inside shoulder, keep your outside outside arm free, and he took on the block, and then played contain. And initially the back uh, or the the ball carrier went to turn it inside, but the guy coming from the inside was on exactly the right angle coming inside out. So then he tried to bounce it, but the corner was still there, for, forced him to bounce it further, and then the guy running the alley made the made the tackle on the sideline with a nice collision. And I'm sitting there in the box going, I tell you what, Jay Bateman right now, when he's going to be looking at this in film session, every one of those guys is going to get a is going to get a, a nice plus on this because they did their job. It's nothing really spectacular, but it's excellent team defense. And that means that you know, even if you don't have a bunch of four stars or five stars out there. If you're all doing your job, all that space that wouldn't ordinarily be out there otherwise is is compressed, and it just means that the that the offense has to be that much better to make a play. And so, just a tip of the cap to the to the team defensive approach and how much they've bought into not necessarily not freelancing, not trying to play hero ball on defense, but doing their job. And if it's somebody else's responsibility to fill and make that tackle, as long as I spill it. I've done my job. That stuff over and over again. I want to shout that out as much as anything else because that really made a huge difference. And it's one of the reasons Miami didn't have a ton of yards you know, after contact and a ton of big plays in this game because they had some, some creases for a moment, but they just kept getting shut down because guys did their jobs. But we talked about last week, changes in expectations, and I want to close the show getting – uh, both of your perspectives, and if my memory serves, we all said, or y'all said, talk to me after Miami. If Carolina beats Miami, then we'll have to reassess. So here we are. Carolina's 2-0, and having beaten South Carolina and Miami, head to Wake Forest on a Friday night, Friday the 13th. Uh, have your expectations, Buck, changed significantly since the start of the season? Of course they have, Tommy. Of course they have. Uh, it, everybody's expectations have changed. Probably Mac Brown's expectations have changed since the start of the season. But one thing I want to talk about before we get to my thoughts on that, that we haven't talked about, which I think is incredible, is that North Carolina had one penalty for five yards yes. against Miami. You, you look at, you know, Miami is the kind of team that's going to play aggressive. They're going to be physical. Uh, they're the kind of team that can bait you into having some penalties that are drive killers and, you know, do other things that uh, enhance uh, Miami's game plan. But in this particular contest, they had one delay a game penalty, which happened to come after a kickoff. That was it. No false starts, no offsides, no holding, none of that. And I'm going to 
you know, I want to say, I think of this in terms of this is a black swan event. This is not going to happen, but you know, once every four or five million games, uh, it's just unheard of to be that disciplined in a game. And I think it was a key component to their win, but, um, you know, Mac Brown has instilled a lot of things and, and this relates to the confidence issue or to the expectations issue, I should say, is that he's instilled a lot of benchmark sorts of expectations for his team. I want you to be disciplined. I want you to show up and do your job. If you're not doing your job, you're not going to play. Uh, over and over again, those sorts of top-down directives that I'm not bending on this. That this is not negotiable. You've got to do what we expect of you or you're not going to play. And uh, the expectation that he has built into the team that if you will follow me, and we've talked about this, Tommy, you and I, and, and Jason as well, on multiple occasions is that when you have a coach who has in UNC basketball term terminology has banners hanging in the rafters and that guy comes into the locker room or he's on the practice field. And he says, if you do things the way I ask you to do them, we're going to be successful. We may not win every game. We may have setbacks, but, if you will do things the way I asked you, we're going to win. And the reason you should know that is because of this championship ring on my finger. I've done this before. I know what it takes. I know what it looks like. I know what practice should look like. I know what strength and conditioning should look like. I know what all the individual pieces should look like that go into a winning program. and. That is the standard that he, Mac Brown has set that has changed expectations that fans have about how this season will ultimately play out. I don't think anybody should be having a ACC title championship game, uh, appearance, you know, penciled in. I don't think you should be clearing out your uh, schedule for that week just yet. There's a lot of work to be done, and injuries are part of it. Uh, fluke things that happen in games is a part of it. I was watching Wake Forest play the other night against Rice, obviously uh, an undermanned opponent, but Wake Forest has got some players. Their quarterback is really, really good. They got re wide receivers that should scare anybody. I mean, Appalachian State, they're going to be a quality opponent. Uh, you go on down the list. Winning in, at, in Blacksburg is not going to be a piece of cake. Uh, Virginia is looking as solid as just about any team in the nation right now across the board. Um, you know the guys over in uh, West Raleigh are going to be loaded and ready for bear when North Carolina shows up over there. So there's so many things that play into it, but 
Jason and I and everybody on the IC staff, except for Tommy Ashley, had UNC 0-2 at this point. And uh, so now that there are 2-0, obviously expectations are going to change. I think this is clearly a bowl team. They're going to go to a bowl. Um, That's going to happen. And what happens above that is yet to be seen. So that's where I am with expectations. Uh, I think North Carolina now can be called a good football team. They're not the two and nine team they were last year. So I I think there is uh, yet to be determined what the, you know, final record might be, but I, I expect to see the ESPN FBI FPI probabilities start to change. So, Jason, I wanted to get your thoughts on the expectations like I asked Buck and Buck got to, but he did mention the penalties. And and not only was that incredible that Carolina had only one, but one of the most interesting points of the night was as soon as they threw the flag for ineligible downfield, I believe they called several of the offensive linemen downfield. Mac was all over it and said, no, 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 no. The passes were behind the line of scrimmage. They can be as far downfield as they want in that regard, and the officials changed it. I'm not sure I've seen that happen for a North Carolina football team in quite some time. Uh, your thoughts on the penalties and your thoughts on expectations? Yeah, I mean, the penalty thing, it was just a clean game overall. I mean, neither team was flagged a bunch. Uh, some of that is just that that, that crew allowed allowed both teams to to play up front, which I think was was – was the right decision. Things were being played pretty clean. And then the rest, I mean, one of the things that, that again, stands out is the play in the secondary, there were opportunities at, on a number of occasions to interfere and they didn't. And again, it's, it's proper technique, proper coaching. They're, they're going to get more penalties at different points over the course of the season. But I do think that it speaks, speaks highly of the level of buy-in and discipline that has come into the program. You know, they've been a very highly penalized teams team in recent years, but they've you're not seeing a team that's jumping off sides a bunch. You're not seeing a team with a lot of motion penalties and so on. And that is something that again, you you have to put those guys under pressure in camp and get them to where they're playing with confidence and they're not overthinking and and getting themselves into positions where a lot of times it's a it's a it's a team a less confident team that has a lot of um pre-snap penalties. And I think this team's playing with a lot of confidence, and I think that's a big part of that. Uh, you don't actually want to make a practice of only having one penalty for five yards because you do periodically want some aggressive penalties and all that. Because if you're not if you're not getting some penalties, then that means you're not you're not towing the line enough to get away with some stuff. <laughs> but for this game, it again it shows a lot about sort of where the culture is and and where things are headed. I do think that. My expectations overall haven't really changed on the on the large picture. Uh, I think that this team, in terms of the level of quality, is a little ahead of where I thought they'd be defensively. But Miami, you know, I think did expose a little bit about a little bit of the weakness defensively uh, in terms of there being some vulnerability in some spots. They did move the football well. They just didn't finish, and a lot of that is is by design, as we talked about. But there's going to be some teams that'll, that will move it and will finish, and they'll end up winning those games. Uh, there's still some some talent gaps on the roster, so I don't want to get too over the moon yet. Uh, 
Golf. But I do think Clemson. that in terms <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, Clemson, you know, the the whole idea of like people were legitimately chanting apparently at the game, uh, uh, you know, bring on Clemson or we want Clemson. Uh, no, trust me, you don't. You really, really don't. Um, but, you know, again, you go in and you try to play Clemson and keep that game close and, you know, go into the fourth quarter and you never know what, what, what can happen. That's why they play game, play the game. But at the end of the day, I think this team is a little ahead of where I thought they'd be overall, um, but not, not by so much that, that I think I'd change a lot about projections moving forward. I mean, I thought they'd be about a seven win team before the season. That's what we had in the pre in the preseason right now. I think that puts them at maybe an eight win team right now. You can start to adjust that up as they start winning those games. You beat Wake Forest. Let's say they start four and oh, and now you start looking at the rest of the schedule and you say, you know, nine wins is legitimately realistic. Now, now at that point, you can start to do that right now. I'd say, you know, you adjust your win projections up a little bit, expecting a little bit of bad luck here and there and some injuries and all that that are inevitable in, in, in this sport. But really what it's about is showing progress and getting the culture where it needs to go. And even let's say this team does win eight, eight games this year, that still might be enough to win the division, which would be unbelievable. Uh, given or or as Buck said earlier, inconceivable. Right? Uh, although I guess you know if, if they do it, it you know that word doesn't mean what we think it means. But um, but in any case, this this team, I think now you can kind of adjust your expectations up a win over whatever you may have had during the preseason, unless you really believed that you know they were going to win both of those games even if the the rest of the product isn't a whole lot different just because they've won two coin flip games. So I think Wake Forest is pretty close to a coin flip as well. You win that one and now your expectations go up even more. But Wake is a really good football team. We'll talk plenty about them uh, in, in the podcast later in the week. But I mean, it's it's uh, as optimistic a time to be around Carolina football as, uh, as I can remember. So this, sh- this should be fun times uh, going forward for a while. Indeed it is. It's amazing how fun these podcasts are on Sundays after wins. Uh, my expectations have not changed. Um, I'm, they're on schedule as far as I'm concerned. Folks that have called me a genius in the first two weeks probably not going to like me next week, but uh, we'll see what happens. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, and Buck and Jason both were a part of it, as was nearly the entire IC staff and the WCHL team we were in the Bowls lot doing the pregame show live from the Bowls lot. I've talked a lot about how uh, important the Bowls lot tailgating tailgating experience is to the North Carolina fan uh, fandom game day experience. And Saturday was no different. It was a little warm down there, uh, but we were able to get the, the pregame show started three hours before kickoff and Ron Stutz and all those guys were down there and Buck and Jason and Taylor Vipolis, Greg and Ross, just the entire team down there doing the CHL tailgate show. Buck, I do appreciate for you making that happen. And I, and I did want to give you a shout out for that because I know it's one of the things you wanted to make happen for Inside Carolina and, and for the North Carolina fans down there in the Bowls Light. How did you think it went? I think it went awesome. Uh, we wanted to have a real – test to see how it would work and how 
uh, it would all play out, all the technical difficulties, uh, the setup and all of that. We wanted to make sure all that went according to our uh, standards and expectations. And so, therefore, we didn't really say anything about it ahead of the time. Uh, but for home games moving forward, uh, we're going to be in the bowl slot with WCHL doing their uh, pregame tailgate show, which starts three hours ahead of uh, kickoff. And uh, we were there, and behind the, uh, the tent we had set up, we had the IC Green Room. Uh, with Jason Staples and Taylor Vipolis and uh, Greg Barnes and Ross Martin and the whole crew. Um, and uh, it just went really, really well. We're very happy about it. We're giving away swag. That's one of Tommy's favorite things uh, in life is free, <laughs> free swag. <stuff. laughs> uh, he, he likes free stuff almost as he likes the reserve quarterback at UNC. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, you know, we give away a lot of stuff from, uh, I see, I see gear. We give away uh, Johnny t-shirt, big time Johnny t-shirt gear. We give away uh, really nice WCHL gear. Uh, so come by, you see the inside Carolina tent in the bowls lot. If you're parked somewhere else, come on by anyway. And, uh, check in with us and uh we love to meet inside carolina subscribers it was a great day um and we're looking forward to being there for the remaining five home games uh, to uh carry on this what we hope will become a tradition in the bowl slot the inside carolina wchl tailgate show um ahead of every home game Indeed, very fun, very appreciative to everybody that took part, everybody that made it happen, especially you, Buck, Inside Carolina, WCHL, Ron Stutz. That'll do it for this podcast. We'll be back. It's a condensed week. Carolina, of course, plays Wake Forest Friday at 6 o'clock in Winston-Salem. I'd like to give away Non-conference game. Yeah, non-conference game. Uh, I'd like to have a, a ticket giveaway for that game since it's mostly a home game when North Carolina goes that way. But alas, it won't happen. The next Inside Carolina tell, uh, Inside Carolina ticket giveaway will be for App State in a couple weeks. So stay tuned for those. Jason and Buck, always fun. Always fun after Carolina pulls out a 28-25 win over Miami. Always nice to talk about these games after. Well, we haven't had many wins like this. So it's almost a unique experience. But uh, uh, always appreciate getting together with uh Tommy and you, Jason, uh, it's always uh, a fun experience and looking forward to it the rest of the year on the day after podcasts. It's so much fun, so much more fun when it's, uh, when it's after something, after something last night though, that's for sure. Yeah. The day after a win podcast this time, we'll see you soon folks. Take care. Thanks for listening to another podcast from inside Carolina.com. Brought to you by johnnytshirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.